Hi, and welcome back to TPI's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Thursday, September 27, 2018, and I'm Sarah O, Research Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. Today, we're excited to talk with Victoria Graham, a journalist with Bloomberg. Victoria Graham is an antitrust and corporate crime reporter for Bloomberg Law in Washington, covering news and trends with the Justice Department, Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Federal Trade Commission. Victoria's antitrust coverage also extends into private litigation matters, including antitrust suits against the NCAA and employee class actions involving employer no-poach agreements. Ms. Graham received her BA in Media Studies and Government from the University of Virginia. I'm joined today by Scott Walston, TPI Senior Fellow and President, who will start off asking Victoria some questions about her thoughts on antitrust journalism today. Victoria, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. And uh, thanks for coming to Aspen and that great interview you did with um, Barry Nigro. Actually, I'd like to start off by asking you whether you think that antitrust has become more politicized lately. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, Especially on Twitter. Trump taking note of going after Amazon, specifically calling out antitrust violations in a recent Bloomberg White House interview. And then we saw, was it yesterday? This week has already been very long. Um, Yesterday, state attorney generals convened the Justice Department with Attorney General Sessions, Rod Rosenstein making Del Rahim to chat antitrust. And if uh, the purpose of that chat was supposed to be if there was political censorship on these platforms, but it seemed to, from reporting, kind of diverge into privacy issues and, and not as politicized issues as we had anticipated. But it's still a topic of a concern that from what analysts have been telling me and what I've been chatting with my colleagues could more evolve into a state AG probe instead of a DOJ probe at this point. So... It's interesting, though, that they um, view this question of bias as an antitrust one. Yeah, I wrote an article about this when it first came out, Trump's tweets, and to ping this to, uh, attach this to an antitrust concern under, you know, DOJ, under the DOJ is very much so a leap of faith. And if an actual investigation were to be brought forth, there would have to be some sort of smoking gun, like some sort of collusion between all these companies with emails that tacitly apply that they were saying, hey, Facebook, hey, Instagram, hey, Twitter, let's all, you know, not tweet these Republican, this you know, very far right thoughts because we want to depress these types of views. And there, there's just so many things that can fall out that could not lead, that you can't attach an antitrust concern to potential political censorship with, with these platforms, if that can even be a topic of discussion. So but is that their theory to the extent there is one that it's collusion? It's some kind of... Uh, it seems like to be Trump's theory. Well, right, um, it's always talking about yeah. collusion. <laughs> not for him, but for everybody else. <laughs> you know, the only thing that antitrust attorneys were telling me about this, if we could see that maybe there are algorithms that specifically we see Facebook and Twitter working to mine kind of data because of a a concern that these types of far right-leaning views tend to bring. It's a commercial interest. We don't want to see these types of views on our platform because they're anti-Semitic or they're, you know, racial bias in any sort of way. And we've already seen this fallout with Facebook and, you know, seeing content, you know, live streamed and also anti-Semitic content come forth. And should those views be censored? Because they're obviously just very far right and just not in the context of what we want to see on those types of platforms. So there can be a commercial interest and that would, if there was some sort of algorithm that prevented these views from coming forth, they can just attach it to that commercial concern. So you mean the companies can attach it to a commercial yep. concern? Mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, going on with that, the theme of what should be on platforms and what shouldn't be, do you think there's more a concern of that things get taken off that shouldn't be taken off or that things end up on that shouldn't be on? Because they can air sort of on one side or the other. Yeah. And neither one is good. 
Yeah. I mean, the whole Alex Jones controversy mm-hmm. with the Sandy Hook is a great one of things that should not be on this because it's obviously incorrect. And why are we going to continue to legitimize a point of view that's obviously false? But you obviously see scenarios when Facebook and other platforms unintentionally took off a point of view and it, it has you know erupted into a firestorm. So I think it's kind of a weighing balance. But I think most of the time, I think I've seen just more coverage of things that shouldn't have been taken off that were. I mean, it's just a matter of it seems like the technology is not tightly wound as it should be with regulating those types of content. But so, but so you think so far they err on the side of taking too much off or not in your well, opinion that's the, too much off, but that's what they're that, trying to do. I just think those are the types of narratives that get caught up more in the news than mm-hmm. types of narratives when content is censored that should be. So people get more upset when something's taken off that they think shouldn't be taken off than when something stays off. I just think that type of narrative, it catches more eyes and it can be driven faster on, on Twitter. And, you know, as we, by Trump especially, mm-hmm. that, that's a narrative that can be driven home faster and gain more popularity than views on, on things that should be definitely taken off of, of those platforms. Going back to the antitrust part of it, are people pushing an antitrust angle just because that's the way DOJ would be involved and it's just another institution to get involved? Or is there another reason? I think with the antitrust angle, a lot of people believe it's the right tool to use in terms of government regulation and breaking up Facebook, breaking up these big companies has been a big push, you know, just because, you know, Facebook owns Instagram, they own WhatsApp, they have just so many arms and levers that we may not, you know, the average consumer may not realize it's actually one entity owning all these things. Um, the same with, with Google. I think antitrust has just blown up in recent as recent months and recent years as a big policy lever because it has the potential of breaking up companies, but it has to be exercised in the right way where there isn't a monopolistic power that's threatening market concentration. And, and you just cannot prove that right now with this whole antitrust. Facebook is a censoring content storyline that's been kind of blowing the past few weeks. So... I think that's a good segue to maybe bring up the panel that you hosted for us at our Aspen Forum. You interviewed Deputy Assistant Attorney General um, Bernie Nigro. Very, yeah. So in that discussion, you brought up some of these same questions. And one thing that you said was there's an idea that's floating around that big is bad, like big tech, just because it's big. But there's also the counterpoint that big isn't bad, but big that behaves badly is bad. So there's more nuance when you get into antitrust land that, you know, our antitrust laws don't punish winners and monopolies, but it's when they actually exercise that power to hurt competition when there are actual effects. So maybe let's talk a little bit about what the panel was on. You touched on newsworthy antitrust matters like the T-Mobile Sprint merger, AT&T Time Warner case, the Amex case on two-sided markets, Tribune Sinclair that hasn't didn't go through now, and And yeah, you talked about network effects or technology markets. How did you think that interview went? And what's your general approach to interviewing antitrust regulators? Well, I try to cover as much ground as I could with the most noteworthy topics at the time. And just reading through Barry Niger's speeches that he gave prior to this conference and just seeing his thought process was with with large themes like network effects helped me kind of hone in my questions and then attach those types of themes to what the big mergers 
were going on that were pro- most likely at the time under DOJ review. So, you know, when I interview, you know, front office individuals at the DOJ and, and other antitrust individuals, I have to be cognizant of, of what I know will be off the, you know, off the record, what I know they can't touch upon because it's a pending matter, you know, Sprint T-Mobile, for example. But, you know, kind of picking at their views about, you know, with Sprint T-Mobile, I went into how this 5G argument, how can an argument about merger efficiencies that two companies, when they combine, they're going to bring about this new technology, how much, you know, even outside the five, the Sprint T-Mobile context, how much is a merger efficiency enough to outweigh any potential anti-competitive concerns and bring forth remedies or bring forth an approval in an otherwise anti-competitive merger. So I try to, you know, work, divvy up my my questions about kind of long-term effects, what we've seen as themes in mergers and how companies are pitching them in ways DOJ would kind of would put their heel in, in the ground to prevent that or maybe let it through. So it's a give and take because I have to be cognizant of what they can't do, but try to kind of push, put toe the line as much as I can with general themes that can shine light on what they're thinking about in a pending merger case. I thought it was interesting, his response to your questions on two-sided markets and data. Is data itself, you know, does it create market dominance? And these are big questions for tech and the DOJ is thinking about them and you can't leap to conclusions just because a company has a lot of data. They're, therefore, they're dominant and we need to break them up. So what do you think about coming off of that, the FTC's competition hearings? We were both at the first one and you said we kind of tuned in for the second one and there are six more. What's your t- take on the hearing so far? You know, the hearing so far, I think the second one, based on, I was informed actually there, as we mentioned, but I thought, you know, Rebecca Slaughter, she made a point there in the very beginning saying that if we walk away from these FTC hearings, just giving ourselves a pat on the back, then we haven't done our job. Did she say what would mean that they had done their job? She didn't specifically point out, but the thought of, you know, if there needs to be vertical remedy, vertical merger guidelines, you know, mm-hmm. being re- revisited, that's been a topic that early at Georgetown was, was discussed with some FTC officials there as well. Based on what I saw, she didn't really go into the specifics of what it was, but it definitely seemed like this wasn't a, just a thought process exercise. It was a, and nor a reflective exercise. It's one where we want to see where we're getting things wrong. And also, I think specifically, there's been a lot of, talk at the FTC about looking at how long merger reviews have taken and seeing if that's been a sticking point and has led to lax antitrust enforcement potentially based on if they just have taken too long, if they've been too short, where we need to get that right in order to bring about more robust antitrust enforcement that's needed. Is there a bipartisan agreement among the commissioners that, that antitrust enforcement has not been strict enough? With this new incoming slew of FTC commissioners, I think mm-hmm. it's a topic of, that's been brought up more often than in the past. But interesting to see the, D- the DOJ take a different review because Macon Delrahim announced earlier this week that they are going to reduce their work as best as they can to reduce their merger review period to six months or less. While, you know, from my reading of the FTC earlier this week at the same conference, they don't want to hold themselves to those same amount of time requirements, but are cognizant of how long it takes and, in their view, kind of pretty much the longer it takes. It's not a reflection on us doing a slower job. It's us doing a more thorough job. So they seem to be doing a more empirical study retrospective approach to seeing how long it's taken while the DOJ is moving forward with the strict six-month timeline and making amendments to their actual procedural measures to enforce that view. Speaking of how long it takes them to review a merger, what did you think about the the process by which Disney and Comcast bid for Fox? I mean, it seemed like DOJ and Disney were negotiating before the deal had ever gone through. That's weird, right? Macon made some content, some comments about it earlier in the summer, saying how there were surgical ass remedies that you know negotiations between the DOJ front office folks and the attorneys 
he's at uh, working on on uh, behalf of this Disney merger. So yeah, there were discussions about it before I went through. I wouldn't say that's necessarily odd, but the fact that Macon was very outright about it and very transparent about what was going on in these merger negotiations and that there were going to be asset divestitures um, is different for an assistant attorney general. He's been very transparent and very open about his views of structural remedies. And for him to talk about that while it was a pending matter was unique. It also it shed a lot of light on the deal. And I think it led to the outcome we, we've seen today. Trying to identify where these firms may or may not have monopoly power. It seems like we consistently ignore the presence of competitors outside the U.S. I mean, most of these big companies, they have a direct analog in China. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's Alibaba and Baidu, Tencent. Does that come up in any of these discussions or when you've talked to antitrust officials? How do they think about these other firms? Do they view it as a different world? You know, it's interesting they bring that up because I'm thinking to Sprint T-Mobile specifically. We're looking at two of the telecom companies there, two of the major wireless providers they are, are premising their merger on the same claims that T-Mobile and Sprint are, that if you let us merge, Chinese antitrust authorities, we will bring about 5G faster. So analysts have told me that specifically if that actually gets a green light by Chinese antitrust authorities, and that is a very big win for Sprint and T-Mobile, potentially, because it shows that you know China believes that merging these two companies will bring about 5G faster. And 5G, especially with the Trump administration, is a very politicized issue. And it's one that I personally can see if, if Trump has just wind of this and potentially sees, like he saw in Sinclair and Tribune, kind of a pushback from DOJ on it. If he can, and he's very adamant about 5G, he could, you know, be on Twitter again, expressing these views of the Sprint T-Mobile deal goes through because we don't want China to win the 5G battle. We want the U.S. to. So I think with issues that are very analogous to what we were seeing in the U.S., like Sprint T-Mobile, that's when we'll see more antitrust scholars divvy back to what we were seeing abroad. But for the most part, most antitrust scholars I'm talking to and antitrust attorneys are just thinking about how U.S. companies are dealing with different antitrust regimes abroad and what we're seeing, the issues there and the main sticking points. You know, if nationalistic companies companies are given more leeway in certain regimes and others, and therefore U.S. companies are not given as strong of a foothold because they're going to have antitrust scrutiny more so abroad than they are here in the U.S. But they don't think about like Alibaba as a competitor to Amazon, potentially? In the discussions I've had, I mean, that hasn't really come up so much. I mean, I think so, you know, when you see these these big antitrust EU actions against U.S. companies, that's where we see kind of a sticking point. Is it American companies that are, are catching a bad rap here in the EU? And, you know, will we see these analogous issues drawn out with other countries abroad that have e- an EU presence? I think that remains to be seen. But it's a topic of discussion that I think a lot of people have their eye out on because that's big uh, sticking point. Is, are EU regulators targeting U.S. companies or are they just taking a very broad approach against market dominance and large companies having to more of a fiduciary duty to you know make sure there's a broad market competition? And But is that focused a lot for companies all over the EU and not just a U.S.-based company? It's a topic, but I haven't really delved into it much with the scholars I've talked to so far. And antitrust journalism, it kind of related. It seems like other issues can bleed in and out. So privacy, wage growth, inequality, innovation, economic growth. You know, sometimes those other topics can come into the antitrust discussion or generalists, journalists, tech journalists might want to enter into antitrust journalism in order to talk about those issues. Do you see, how does that affect your job as an antitrust specialist (laughs) where these other issues might come into your scope or where other journalists try and enter antitrust land? How do you see that boundary in your reporting? 
I think it'll it's going to come up even more so now that the FTC has Lena Khan, the author of the Amazon Antitrust Paradox. She's working for them now, and her her big premise is that the large companies are driving wage inequality. They are driving these big social issues that we're seeing now. But for me, as an antitrust journalist, you know, I've seen more and more of these narratives kind of bleed into what I'm writing about. But I'm also having to be cognizant, specifically what the DOJ is is saying and making Delrahim is saying that antitrust is a, a tool that is not meant to regulate markets. And if we want to ensure wage growth and wage and social equality, it's not that antitrust is, is not the right tool. We need to look at different measures outside that scope. When I approach these issues, I kind of weigh in those concerns, but I you know, don't attach them to the thinking that is going on currently in the, in the antitrust enforcement world, because that's one that I, they're definitely pushing back on. So it's, it's a give and take matter. And I just see it bleeding more into work I do because of you know, kind of the FTC hiring Lena Khan. That's her main talking points. There's a staffer for a commissioner. Do you view that as the person working for the FTC or for the commissioner? Because Lena Khan works for Commissioner Chopra. Yeah. As of right now, from what I can see, is she's specifically working for the commissioner. Chopra's comments ahead of the FTC hearings, you know, were in the footnotes. She helped draft a lot mm-hmm. of the positions in that. And, you know, throughout the FTC hearings, hearing other commissioners speak, I don't see, you know, murmurs of her work as much, you know, entering into that. But it's definitely, you know, a driving force in, in what Rohit Chopra is thinking so far. And um, I think so far in the hearings, he's been a very outspoken individual. And he, and overall, I think he's very vocal in this field more so than maybe the other commissioners have been thus far. So I just see that while her views don't reflect the commission as a whole, by Chopra being very open and transparent in these forms, it may reflect division as a whole of the FTC. When you talk to people about 5G mm-hmm. and the competitive aspects of it, are the discussions always focused specifically on 5G as 5G as its own market? Because somehow 5G has been attached to the, all of this hype about you know its benefits for economic growth and blah, blah, blah. And you know it seems like there are different ways to think about it. One is if it helps wireless become a better competitor to wireline, then that will have implications for us so that the entire broadband market would be an argument or at least help an argument for T-Mobile sprint merger because it would mean that there are more competitors. But it also somehow makes it less exciting as an actual innovation, right? I guess there's two questions. One is, how has wireless been so successful at, into making this seem like such a huge deal? And then does it ever get put together with the rest of the broadband market? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think uh, I agree with what you've said that 5G, in terms of innovation, maybe not as get as much of a, a level up as it is when it's attached to these you know very noteworthy issues. I think you know, the heads of Sprint Team Mobile have just done a very good job in their Senate hearing earlier this year and just in their rollout of attaching it. You know, even before they announced their merger, 5G has just been a huge issue. There's just this narrative that it's a race against the U.S. and every other large wireless player, large country in the world, who will bring it about faster because of... And I think it's at, well, what gets lost in, in that narrative is, you know, all the benefits it brings with it because we just see it as it's a necessity to have this, but there's so many infrastructural benefits to it. There's so much internet of things bringing about just all this connectivity that uh, I think gets lost in that translation a little bit too. And the actual, I'm just, I'm interested to see how, especially with tomorrow, there's a whole 5G conference that Axios is is bringing forth with uh, Del Rahim and the EU's competition commissioner about the narrative will be how is 5G and competition policy kind of weighed into each other in their path. So it'll be interesting to see how that is is talked about from a U.S. and 
an EU perspective, because I think for, for right now, the big narrative has been China and US 5G. I don't think we've seen as much European conversations about their growth and bringing about 5G. So I'm interested to see what the EU is thinking about in terms of competition issues in 5G. But yeah, it's definitely been interesting to see how this issue has veered in, in certain directions versus others. So I'm not sure that framing it as this national race is even the right way to think about it. I mean, back in when it was 1G, I guess, and there was the question of GSM versus other standards, Europe took one approach and we took a completely other one, which was a mix of standards. And can we say that one approach was necessarily better than the other? I mean, there's been a lot of debate about that. Yeah. Well, (laughs) CDMA won the race. Right. But but, we didn't know. I mean, at that time. That's right. So uncertain. That brings us to market definition, maybe. So we've been discussing that here. And I think people, the regulators have been too. Is market definition important or not? Different scholars say yes and no, but it seems like for platforms and multi-product firms, defining the market will be even more important than ever. What have you heard lately about market definition? You mean in terms of like the big tech companies? Yeah. And even for wireless versus wireline Mm -hmm. or um, hospitals or, you know, the granularity by which you define a market local or global matters for antitrust enforcement. So what are your thoughts about market definition? You know, specifically going back to this whole Facebook, Instagram, are they are they censoring conservative platforms? One of the key issues, if you want to bring it up, up under antitrust concerns, is who is the dominant market player in the social media space? And it's very hard to define who that is because there's so many, you know, is Facebook it or is Instagram it? And there's just different. It's very hard to find that market because they, they kind of bleed into one another. They're all different from one another. Is Google more of a dominant platform than Facebook? You can't. There is no, it, the market is not very defined there. So I think what we'll see more and more is um, if we want to continue to wave the wand of antitrust, then we'll have to define and further hone in these markets to actually use that tool. And that's one I think that the division especially is trying to wade away from because it, it gets kind of messy. They're um, trying to move away from it. Well, I, no, I, I'm saying they're trying to move away from what, using antitrust as oh, we'll move away from antitrust um, as the end all be all for you know why we're seeing higher rates of market concentration, and it's just very hard to define it, especially with tech platforms, and that just gets very concentrated, very in the weeds of how we can actually bring about antitrust concerns because there is no way to really define some of these markets because they're not you know black and white, they're they're not straight cut. I'm wondering why you wanted to become a journalist, Um, because it's such a difficult industry. And also within that, why antitrust? I mean, you know, for us, it seems, you know, natural. Of course, you don't want to do antitrust, but most people don't think that way. And so how did all that happen? Uh, Sometimes I still ask myself why I'm a journalist. (laughs) But for me, you know, I think I really love being a journalist because I feel like I'm in school every day. I love school. I love college. Um, And it's just it's really interesting to see issues evolve and take new forms, especially in the antitrust scope and especially within the past few months now. You know, I, I was specifically drawn to antitrust in a course I took in college on media consolidation in the media industry. And that to me, just fascinating thinking, oh, my gosh, my views and how I am approaching the world and the lens I'm viewing it is, is controlled by a select handful of companies. And to think that there's only a select handful of CEOs running that company and they have views that are, you know, infiltrating our programming potentially. That was, you know, led me down to, you know, antitrust in the media world is something I'm I'm really interested in and tech platforms, but also seeing how, you know, infrastructure wise, the cases that get not as much uh, noteworthy media headlines, you know, involving, you know, we saw the FTC block 
back, uh, go through the pinnacle ConAgra merger in the food market that doesn't, doesn't get as much media play. Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting because that affects your grocery aisles and things like that. So for me, I really like antitrust because I can go down the aisle of a store or I can browse, you know, uh, the library or browse, you know, s- slew of Netflix options and think about all the backstory that went into what I'm seeing now as a consumer and what led to this point where I'm seeing AT&T and Time Warner merge and how is that going to affect what I watch on Game of Thrones with HBO in the next coming months? Is that going to actually be something that I, well, I see different programming content there. So I just, I love it. I think it's just, it's fascinating. And uh, I don't know why I got hooked on it. It was one course in college that really got me into it. So and so what do you think about media consolidation now? I'm going to a hearing on it on, mm-hmm. at 3 p.m. on the Hill. And uh, I think what's so interesting about it with the AT&T Time Warner merger, you know, that went through, it's on appeal. And the whole premise of that is we need to compete against the lights of Netflix. We need to compete against these streaming services. I'm really amazed by how large media conglomerates that we've known for 20 plus years are having to react now to these streaming services and how, you know, they're pretty much at their knees now with these new technology platforms, which 10 years ago did not have as much market power as they do now. So seeing that evolve to a form where we're seeing ISPs controlling content more and more so, you know, other than Comcast and NBC, it's just, it's fascinating because that's, we're seeing, you know, the media industry consolidate truly in terms of its distribution channels and how much is that really going to impact our bill to how we actually are perceiving content and seeing that develop. It's really interesting because I, I feel like these vertical mergers that we're seeing in the media space are really, they really impact us in ways we may not realize now, but we'll see in 20 years from now or 15 years from now. Do you think, are you, would you be, I mean, it's hard to say hypothetically because every merger is different, but does that mean you're sort of inclined to think that more vertical mergers are not good and that these companies actually don't need either upstream or downstream, depending on which way they start in order to continue and grow? I just think the whole idea of market leverage, how that will play out with these vertical tie-ups is is really interesting. Will we see, you know, the biggest thing will we see a higher cable bill, but, and the idea of content exclusivity, like, well, you know, Time Warner content, how much more we have to pay for that? I don't necessarily think vertical mergers in every space are wrong, but I just, you know, in the media space, I think there's just so many more implications to it that we just haven't fully realized yet. And it's interesting to see when we'll start realizing those implications. And um, I think it's going to happen even more so as more and more companies are reacting to the growing threat of Netflix and and Hulu and, and other entities like that. What about in the news space? I mean, it's for a while, I guess it's been the case, at least the various work that I've read, that national and international news doing okay. There's a lot of coverage of it, new, you know, even new sources, and state and local news decimated. Is that partly a function of the mergers, or is that a, just a different phenomenon? I'd say it's both. You know, especially in the U.S. media culture, we saw you know recently with Time Time Warner being or Time Magazine being bought out by um, the CEO of Salesforce, and that's you know thinking, oh, Amazon's owned by. I mean, Washington Post is owned by Amazon's Jeff Bezos. And uh, in a way, internet and these companies led to the kind of pain points we're having now in the media space. But at the same time, they're giving us a lifeline, a monetary lifeline that is desperately needed. But they cut our advertising. So it's give and take. It's just interesting to see how this will all play out. The big thing is, you know, will we not see coverage of Amazon as critical on certain platforms, you know, as on Washington Post because it's owned by Jeff Bezos? I don't think that definitely hasn't been the case yet, but that's always a thought in the back of a lot of people's minds. And it's just interesting to see how an industry that took away advertising dollars for news has also been one 
that's extended its hand and bought out these companies and really propelled it forward in ways, but also to the detriment of state uh, local news that we've seen just a growing cut of those outlets. And it's a shame. I mean, it definitely goes back to advertising. They just don't have enough that now it's on national platforms on Google that are, are swiping up those dollars and leading to the detriment of those. So, and we're not seeing smaller companies being bought out by these large tech companies. It's, it's big, you know, Atlantic, Time, Washington Post, these big nationalistic uh, media companies are being bought out. Yeah, so. that's actually, that's a really interesting point. One of the things that people say, some people contend is a problem is that Facebook or Google, those companies will buy up a small firm that they see as a potential competitor. Mm-hmm. And of course, the response to that is companies enter the market because they hope to be bought up someday. Mm-hmm. And so then there's the argument between those two sides. But you're saying that that market, um, the market for sort of small local news firms doesn't really even exist. Is that right? Am I hearing you? I'm, you know, I from the national, the narrative we've seen played out in the media, I just don't, there hasn't been as much, we don't see these stories coming out where Jeff Bezos is buying the Denver Post, for example. Smaller markets have more of a chance of having a downfall because of, of the downturn of advertising than larger media companies because the people lining up for them are, are lining up for these larger media companies more so than they are for the smaller ones. So the local news media just gets absorbed into the national one mm-hmm. and doesn't remain a local, a separate local market. Do you have to worry about that for your own career future? I mean, not the local news in particular, but the state of the industry? You know, where I am right now, there's lots of job postings, which is always reassuring. Mm-hmm. But in, there is the definite narrative, you know, of con- newsrooms being cut. We saw the New York Post recently, that entire, the newsroom being slashed and of that nature. Um, I mean, it is a concern in my mind, but I think being, there are so many other skills you learn in, in the media industry that, that can, you know, if you had to work outside of, in journalism, you could work in PR and things like that. But I always think there's going to be a need for antitrust journalism for example, and really niche industry focused, DC focused journalism that appeals to lawyers behind their desk or appeals to, you know, appeals to actual, you know, DOJ, FTC commissioners who are, are reading this and want to see what is, what other uh, antitrust attorneys are saying. So I think there's always going to be a market for that of, um, you know, my work probably doesn't reach the average consumer, but it, it definitely reaches a lot of policy folks in DC. And I think there'll, there'll always be that drive for that. As you do more and, and more, as you sort of cover these issues, do you find yourself pulled in different directions, like thinking, oh, you know, I, I need to learn more and more about antitrust? Or do you think, well, I, I want to learn more about this industry and do more business reporting, or that here are these particular people who are involved, so I need to learn more about, you know, move more to politics? Do you find yourself getting pulled in different directions? Or is it, you know, antitrust, like, is that, you, know, you want to go more de- deeper and deeper into that area? For right now, I want to go deeper into the area, mm-hmm. but the beauty of antitrust is I think it bleeds into so many different areas mm-hmm. at the same time. You know, I can be very tech focused one day, one week, if there's a whole hearing on tech and the next week I can be, become a policy, you know, really good at, you know, mergers in the cement industry, for example, I can, it can go either ways. And with all of that, you're having to learn, you know, what people, you know, what different senators are saying, what Senator Klobuchar is saying, she's a big adamant person and learning her background on that. And, and also going to, you know, I think more so than, you know, reporter covering one issue on the Hill, I'm covering like 20 pending mergers that Senator on the Hill may have opinion on, but that the DOJ and FTC have different opinions on. So it's, it crosses, a, you know, I'm all running across DC all over the place because there's a lot of people that when they ca- caught wind of, ca- catch wind of it, they really want to be very adamant about what they're thinking and, and their viewpoints. So it's interesting. You also cover corporate crime, yeah, white collar yeah. SEC type coverage. So I thought that was interesting. Any anecdotes of your like? What have you covered recently for white collar? 
So I specifically cover the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the FCPA. So it is a, um, the DOJ and the SEC kind of share uh, jurisdiction with that, with the DOJ can prosecute criminally, while the SEC can only prosecute in a civil matter. And with that, you're dealing with issues where you're having U.S.-based firms or firms abroad that have U.S. stocks that have, are on the U.S. stock exchange that are involved in a bribery scheme abroad. So recently, what if I have reported on... The thing that's tricky with these issues, like, so Microsoft is a case I recently reported on the DOJ is, is investigating potential bribery allegations with software third-party dealers in Europe. But what's most likely is this is an extension of a nearly five-year probe because these cases take years because they are so document-heavy. You have to work, the U.S. has to work with dr- different jurisdictions abroad to bring about these cases. So when they, they're brought forth, they're very salacious. Um, we're expecting like a huge Walmart one with Mexico anytime now, but it's been, um, I think, almost eight years since it was first uncovered. These cases are interesting. They take forever and they bring about millions and, you know, almost billions of dollars in fines every year, but they are, they're a slog. So it's interesting to see when it comes forth, but it's hit or miss sometimes with that beat. So antitrust is kind of my more, (laughs) my more current up to date. Uh, so you it's not like meeting outlaws in dark garages. And, no, uh, not and, yet. Uh, Maybe. <laughs> yeah. And there, well, I don't know if this is part of it, but the data breach settlement that Uber mm-hmm. signed with state AGs, it was $148 million. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a big number, but there needs to be deterrence. And it's for the headline that senators are trying to get executive punishment, like some sort of criminal penalties for not reporting Data breach. Um, so they want really data breach reporting will be a criminal. Yeah, um, they're trying to you know put some more um, leverage on on the executives, enforce those laws better. I mean, that, um, I, I didn't cover the data breach, but the entire idea of executives being held to higher scrutiny with any sort of matter is, I mean, a huge issue, especially with FCPA matters. Yates memo, where we want individuals to be prosecuted and held liable, seeing that how it's going to play out, you know, with, with Sally Yates not being there. There's still discussion of it and still a very, a, a sticking point that the DOJ and SEC have said that they want to hold themselves to. But how often are we going to see that come out? You know, actually, this coming Friday, we'll see the sentencing of one of the um, Bumblebee executives in a price fixing case between um, d- different tuna manufacturers. Not not as salacious as other issues, but that's one case where we've seen executives being held culpable for their and it's actions. also, it's an example like we were talking about earlier. I mean, it's not, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was just everyday people in grocery stores who mm-hmm. paid a little bit more and it adds up. Yep, it does. Yeah. And that was tacit collusion, their mm-hmm. email chains. So, and that's just, when will we uncover another scenario like that? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank um, that you. That was really interesting. And um, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Perfect. Sounds great. Thanks. Thanks.